0: You are listening to The Dylan Taunts Podcast. Bob Dylan rang in 2023 with the release of his 17th entry into the bootleg series, the much-anticipated Fragments, consisting of demos, alternate versions, live versions, and outtakes from the Time Out of Mind sessions in 1996 and 97. The deluxe set consists of five discs, the last of which features material from Telltale Signs, bootleg series 8, The first disc is a cleaned-up version of the original release with some production elements removed. Disc two and three consist of outtakes and alternates unreleased before, and disc four is live versions of the songs. Only one song from Time Out of Mind, by the way, Dirt Road Blues, has never been performed live, and some, notably Lovesick, have been crowd favorites. So here at Million Dollar Bashwing of the Dilentance, we have rounded up the usual suspects to round out our roundtable. Rob Reginio teaches modern literature at Alfred University. He is currently at work on a book about Dylan's album, John Wesley Harding. Nina Goss is editor of or contributor to the volumes Tearing the World Apart, Bob Dylan in the 21st Century, and Dylan a Play. She is a contributor to various anthologies and presented at the first World of Bob Dylan conference, 2019, and Dylan and the Beats conference in Tulsa, 2022. She teaches at Fordham University. Core Carney is a professor of history at Stephen F. Austin State University, where he teaches courses on black history and cultural history. He is finishing a book manuscript on the public memory of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Earn Callahan lives in Houston, Texas area, where she teaches English at San Jacinto College. Grayley Hearn is an English professor at Xavier University in Cincinnati, where he regularly teaches a first-year seminar on Bob Dylan. He is author of the book Dreams and Dialogues and Dylan's Time Out of Mind, and he has a Substack newsletter devoted to Dylan called Shadow Chasing. And I am Jim Salvucci, founder and keeper of the Dylan Taunts. And by the way, all of us will be speaking at the World of Bob Dylan Conference in Tulsa this spring, so you can see us there. Let's get your impressions. Now, I don't want your first takes or your impressions from January, but tell, you, tell me what you think of fragments now.
1: Well, I'm, uh, impressed. I mean, obviously I love time out of mind and I love that we now have, uh, all these, uh, outtakes and alternate takes. I'm impressed by the, um, experimental approach of Bob Dylan that he can just radically, uh, take a completely different approach to a song that he has that kind of confidence and that kind of uh, innovation. I'm impressed by the quality of these songs even more because they're, They're versatile enough to accommodate different musical approaches. Um, And we often talk about that, I mean, to use the fancy word for it, bricolage technique, right, of Dylan, which he really started to perfect with Time Out of Mind, taking shards and fragments of other uh, works and piecing them together in interesting ways for his songs. But now that we have fragments, we can see he's not just doing that with other people's music. He's doing it with his own, Mm -hmm. you know, that he, he will take, Little lines and sometimes entire verses from one song and move it over into another one, and so it's really cool to see his creative process on display uh, in fragments.
2: Fragments really reframed "Time Out of Mind" for me, and sh- and really brought to the fore for me what a polished, um, and and ho- homogenized piece of work "Time Out of Mind" is, and. There's a vitality and a roughness to the uh, the outtakes to the uh, to the work on fragments. There's that in a strange way, fragments is not timeless in the way that the uh, the finished product, the sound, the the persona of uh, time out of mind is. So it's it really seems to me to be very contrasting. worlds very contrasting aesthetic and and moral and personal worlds the two uh the two sets of music and it and i'm afraid that time out of mind is going to seem too professional and polished for me going forward as a result of this
3: my respect for the finished product of time out of mind has been heightened by this not to say that the fragments uh outtakes are not um intriguing i i'm besotted by the um the uh dirt road blues um rhythmic dirt road that that version um but um i think one of the things that this allowed me to think about is uh the way in which the the album is typically framed as like this meditation on death and meditation on um, uh, uh, love lost. And I'm going to embarrass uh, Grayley by quoting from his book. I couldn't help it. I was rereading it where he writes that time out of mind emerged out of Dylan's heightened sensitivity to, and his increased personal stakes in the intertwined history of American music as found in the blues And so love and theft becomes a key theme. And I think that's really, for me, really nails down what this listening experience has been to me. I would go so far as to say that the fixation on mortality and the blues on Time Out of Mind um, is an extended thinking through of his sources, that he's sifting through the songs that influenced him, looking for new inspiration. He's processing how cultural fixities become unfixed how truths become illusory, and yet memory, uh, both of resilience and of sorrow, remain in, in, in the songs. And so I think what I hear is this clutch of songs that are put on the hook of love songs in general. But that kind of fades away as the process of recording goes on. And lyrically and sonically, these weightier themes about the passage of historical and cultural time um, uh, uh, become the dominant theme. And so um, that that's uh, uh, why I I had a height have a heightened res- <laughs> respect for the depth of going on in that final in 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 the in the released uh, version.
4: I agree with that, Rob. I think for me, it was the process and like listening to the versions. And I think we all put together our own playlist and kind of altered how we listened to them. And I went through all the different versions of the songs and the arrangements, both lyrically and sonically, to me, did heighten my appreciation for the finished product. And then, you know, so I think that it was looking at the process of him as I think, Nina, you were the you said he's thinking out loud and to actually see him go through the process of thinking out loud and, and kind of pull things apart and come up with that finished product it was, it was really wonderful for me.
5: I think that I came to it thinking about it as a bootleg series volume, and I think I was probably not underwhelmed, but I was maybe whelmed at first. Um, and I think, I, well, I think my, my hitch, my problem was I think I kept on saying, well, why is the telltale sign stuff there? And then I kind of came to the realization that the the question is actually, why does Telltale Signs exist? I think that's kind of <laughs> more where I'm coming from. So my first thought was like, well, what is this? And then the more I've listened to it, the more I've let it just run. It really has a coherence. And not not the record itself, which has its own coherence, but this bootleg series actually is kind of, um, I think it does help. I think as, as Nina and others have said, it kind of helps recontextualize a little bit what's going on. I'll also add, that what's interesting is not so much the works in progress, which I like, but also there's this other stream that he seems to be playing with that doesn't get on the record and it doesn't get on Love and Theft either. And it's sort of that world gone wrong sort of, um, and we can talk about this later, but this kind of other, and it's not, a, it's not an alternative lane and it's not something that, that, that um, kind of dies off. It, it kind of continues to exist, but it's existing outside of his records. Um, it's kind of, there's something there, I think that's interesting where he's kind of going back and I'll I'll say that the magic words for me are red river shore and stuff like that. There's something really sort of, uh, interesting there that he's not either able to get to the level he wants on record or they don't fit the records or whatever it is, but there's something that's kind of external to this record that I didn't quite get before that I really love.
0: That's a big topic. Um, court, I'm wondering if that might be future uh, topic for one of these, these roundtables. The, you know, what, what has been left off and why? And I know a lot of people have covered that ground, but I don't think it's been covered well. Um, and I think the, the brain trust here would do a really great job with that. Grayly, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, you wrote the book, Dreams and Dialogues and Dylan's Time Out of Mind. It's a book I think as time goes on, it's going to get more and more difficult to talk about. Time Out of Mind and, frankly, Fragments, um, without referencing your book in some way or another. And, uh, you know, so congratulations on that. Do we need an appendix? <laughs> Do we need an addendum? Do we need a supplement to your book since the release of Fragments? And I opened this up to everyone, but I want Grayley to talk first.
1: Well, it's deepened my appreciation of Time Out of Mind. Uh, you, you, as an author who is on the record in such detail about uh, an album, you know, there was some trepidation here. Is he going to pull the rug out from under all of my arguments and reveal to me how wrong I had it? <laughs> uh, I did not feel that way uh, with Fragments. Uh, in each case, as much as I love Fragments, I could see why certain takes didn't make it uh, onto the album, and, and I, I it did reaffirm my belief that he he released the right album. He and Lanois uh, put together uh, the songs and the versions of songs that fit together most coherently to create this kind of sonic atmosphere. Uh, and uh, thematically, um, the fragments were revealing in that you can see him in the workshop uh, uh, working with these ideas, sometimes more blatantly uh, in the outtakes. Uh, Dreaming of You Always is, is fascinating to me. My single favorite uh, track on the whole fragments is that teatro version of dreaming of you, which I just think is fantastic. Um, and, and you realize in listening to teatro that Dylan could have given us a very different record. I would never wish that time out of mine as released were anything other than it is, but I would have loved to seen him keep going in that direction and given us an album's worth of that stuff too, because between the can't wait on telltale signs and this Dreaming of you and, uh, uh, isn't there a Dirt Road Blues from Teatro, or am I thinking of Till I Fell In Love With You? Everything everything from those Oxnard sessions I just love, as different as they are from the, the released album. But uh, in thinking of, uh, in terms of uh, the newly released material and my book, I especially was intrigued by the religious uh, outtakes, I mean, certain uh, references to faith and the master and, guide or God, depending on how you read it, and it could almost work either way. Um, and then uh, I think that, uh, you know, the, the either shakiest limb that I walk onto in the book or the most interesting, I, I, I prefer the latter, uh, the, the possibility of a uh, meditation on race in, um, in the songs and that sense of possibly, on one level, a kind of fugitive slave narrative, or an allegorical historical allegory of the search—not for an actual physical lost lover, but for liberty, or freedom. Uh, the, those those ideas were really reinforced for me, especially on you know the one I'm going to read, right? I mean that that great uh, line from "Standing in the Doorway," version one. Um, that I wish had made it onto the album, but I gl- I'm glad that we now have access to it. When the last rays of daylight go down, buddy, you'll roll no more. I can hear them silent bells in my head, and I wonder who they're ringing for. Don't pass me by, give me liberty, or let me die. Uh, I think there's so much you can do with that, and it's so much more ambitious than just a lost love song, someone pining away for the woman who got away. I mean, it is that. It would be futile to deny that it works on that first level. But there are other levels of meaning he's working on here. And lines like that, I think, really reinforce the idea. Much like he uses Rosie, I think, as more than just a person, but as some emblematic uh, dream of liberty and freedom, of an embodiment, an allegorical embodiment of those ideas. Um, I see a lot of that on display here. And I love the fact, it feels to me now that, Yes, Mississippi is a great song. Yes, Mississippi fits well on Love and Theft, but Mississippi is a time out of mind song. <laughs> and I feel like that position is just even more solidified now uh, that we have so many outtakes and that they're always framed in connection through the bootleg series uh, with uh, with this album because that song uh, speaks volumes uh, to uh, that that theme of the meditation on race in America. In um, Dylan's work in general, but especially on the South.
5: All right, want to open it up? Any others? I just want to throw into Grayley real quick that I don't have the, I can't point to the letter and verse here, but I would also throw in, I'll say it again, Red River Shore, that there is a there is an undercurrent there, um, especially if you connect Red River Shore to something like Lakes of Train, which I think is clear, and then you have kind of races right to the edge, like it's it's here. Um, and maybe not so today. Maybe it's central too. I think there's a lot that you could do with that. I think putting that into, into your conversation um would be interesting.
3: And there's a Red River Blues by Josh White. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that fits. In. But what Grayly said about that line, give me—I mean, it's just such a brilliant reinterpretation of a cliche. Give me liberty, or let me die. I mean. When you were speaking that, uh, Grayley, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, in fact, the um, what we get in Fragments bolsters the case that this is it. And that's kind of how I began with my impressions was um, maybe I'm too influenced by your book. But I definitely see that, be, you know, you hear in the press the, the continual litany of Dylan facing his own mortality, Dylan thinking about lost love, Dylan thinking, but um, standing in the doorway, he makes it by taking those lines out of it into a love song but now we get to see that he was thinking about these larger themes and that uh standing in the doorway with that line in it i don't know if it might have fit on i mean it it it's it just it reaffirms what you said
5: well rob i also wanted to bring in like the the question of does it change the way we look at this right and I think if those sessions, if you listen to, like, what you're doing, if you're looking at John Wesley Harding, if you heard all the outtakes, <clears throat> it doesn't really change. I mean, there are some really interesting things, but it doesn't really change the record so much. But this is a record where these outtakes really do offer, you know, very interesting – I mean, can't wait. Um, I mean, you could – there's all sorts of different threads that could have been, been there. I mean, I still love the record, the ones on the record, but there's some great lyrics that just get tossed um, yeah yeah so I think this this unlike other records this is a, this these are the outtakes that kind of do shape like a shadow version of the record that could be absolutely
3: absolutely and I in, in curating my own um version of time out of mind based on uh these um outtakes I deferred often to the studio the final the final vert, but can't, I couldn't decide which can't wait. I wanted to put on there because they're all so, they're all so wonderful. Yeah. And, and so evocative of different paths that could have been taken.
0: I want to move on to a different topic. Um, one that is always lurking there because it's just been there since the beginning. And that is Daniel Lemoine, Um, the producer of time out of mind. The number one dig against time out of mind has been since the beginning um, his production values and, and what he imposed. Now we have a version of the album, the volume or the or the first disc of volume seventeen of the bootleg series, uh, that is stripping out much of what he did, and so you can hear "Time Out of Mind" without all that, without all that so-called swampiness. What are your thoughts on his influence at this point?
1: Well, since I love Time Out of Mine as it is, I didn't need a remix. So, I I feel like if you needed a, an alternate version uh of Time Out of Mine, you got it. <laughs> uh and so the Columbia and the Dylan Camp have placated uh that uh that long uh, complaint. And since we've heard Dylan himself make it too, it's It feels like an act of bad faith on his part to throw Lanois under the bus that way. (laughs) I would be supremely insulted if I were Daniel Lanois, but um, I've listened to the remix. I have nothing against the remix for the person who did it. He was doing a job that he was contracted to do. I'm not quite sure why Columbia or Bob Dylan would do that, but um, so be it. I've, I've listened to it once. I doubt I'll be listening to it again. I'll take time out of mine as released, um, but uh, so I guess I'm not the right person to to be answering this question since I was. Fine. And and I think that the more, for instance, that Craig Danieloff has done uh, those important interviews with Mark Howard, people involved with the, the making of the record, we realized that the dirty sound was coming from Dylan. I mean that I think one thing that at least at, around the 25th anniversary, the more we've heard from people involved, that we realize we got wrong initially, was that the sound was somehow uh, against Bob Dylan's wishes or a, a desecration of, of his pure sound. And the person in the studio who wanted to make it dirtier was Bob Dylan, not Daniel Lanois. Lanois wanted to do the teatro stuff. That was what Lanois wanted for this album. Uh, it was Dylan who uh, pushed it in a different direction.
4: Grayly you're in supportive company, though, because Court and I talked about this and we didn't feel you know, as Court says, overwhelmed by the remix that, you know, I like the Lanois production because I think that it gives us I feel like Dylan is sort of in that space where he's constantly moving and he's not one place or another place. And so sort of that meta space that the sound sonically, the Lanois production gives us that. And so I I prefer the Lanois production for that reason, that we constantly that we feel that we're sort of in an in between space maybe with With Dylan, as he's trying to you know find his way,
2: I agree totally that Lanoir just n- n- is able to create this sonic space that's completely suspended, and that if the if time out of mind is supposed to make us feel actual palpable timelessness suspended between life and death and the underworld and the and the material world. if we're really supposed to feel that, then then the Lanois uh production makes that absolutely palpable and i i'm with uh Grayley, i listen to the remix once and and i just go right past that to the outtakes every time i listen to this so i'm um, thumbs up lane
5: it's so interesting because what would the remix? What would we want the remixes of? We want the remixes of those '80s records, right? We want the remixes. Yeah, <laughs> of,
2: yeah we want oh, Empire yeah. Burlesque stripped, stripped down to, they, they're making it, to little, underwear.
5: This was a little bit of the critics, but it was a little bit too of like this. This is like Let It Be naked or something. Like we're taking Specter out of it, and you know, Specter away from Let It Be kind of proves that. Spectre needed to be, on, to be on some of that stuff. But I think this is such a strange a strange thing. I will also add that this was the first record, I, kind of like the liner notes. This is the first record I bought as a contemporary Dylan fan. This was the first one. And it was like, I came from a world where Emmylou Harris, Wrecking Ball, U2. Wall was a norm. And when you heard that, it wasn't weird. I mean, it wasn't strange. And I think people were kind of off-put by it. But it there was, a, there was a contingent of people that have been written out that didn't find that shocking or odd at all. The other thing I'll say is that this record was my COVID record. And during COVID, I went back to this record a lot. And I was struck by how, <laughs> just how fucking good a record it is. That everything works in it. And that... um You know, you want to say, well, is it really about mortality? It can't really, is it really, are we just believing that? Then you go back to it and you're like, oh yeah, no, it really is. Now it's not about his personal necessarily mortality, but it's all there. And the other thing I'll say is that I was really struck by, and I've been struck by with fragments too, is going back to, we can talk about mortality and we can talk about death and we can talk about all of this, but you also have those two last verses of Highland, which are some of the most beautiful writing he has, where it's like, here's the sun, but it's a different sun. And here I am, and it, but I have the different eyes, and he has that whole last bit where it's like you know that's I mean the the whole record ends with that's good enough for now. That's pretty amazing. And I know Highlands is kind of a weird song in some ways. We want to say it's not really part, but it is. And to have that whole story song at the end, um, I just remember going back to that song over and over again, going well, I don't think I've really listened to it that often. But I was like, man, those when he goes from the waitress and the eggs and the sort of comical thing into this, like, meditative space at the end, I mean, that's it. And like what Nina was saying, there's like a meditative thing going on there. And I think that it nails it. I think it's great. And that's not just because I'm champing what's ever there. But the alternate the alternate versions don't woo me,
3: I should say. Yeah. I agree with you about Highlands for sure. Highlands is kind of like desolation row in a way where it pins together it holds all the songs together oh. it enfolds the whole song sequence in this persona that's considering his own art the passage of time the way that we dream through these songs and cross borders between selves and eras and between life and death and i love that and that's the line i I love that line too i've got new eyes everything seems farther away right which is that distance of I don't quite fit in, but also the past is somehow there lingering on on, on the horizon. Um, I, I like the Lenoir production. And I mean, I went back and reread his great praise for Lenoir on the Oh Mercy record in in um Chronicles, where he says uh Danny's sonic atmosphere. This is on what what is it you wanted? Uh, Danny's sonic atmosphere makes it sound like it's coming out of some mysterious silent land. The production gyrates and moves with all kinds of layered rhythms. There's a certain romance of sound that Lenoir has in his head. And there's that ex post facto, you know, Oh, Lenoir threw all these polyrhythms on my record. And I did, and here he is in Chronicles saying, I like the layered rhythms. It creates this, this i mean what is the layered what is reverb but a way of 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 manipulating or working with echo and that works on a thematic level with this album it works sonically and and as everyone
1: has articulated so well it puts us in this this really beautiful liminal space one of the things that uh, stood out to me in listening to Fragments, and it's not that it wasn't there before, I just didn't notice it as much as I did this time for whatever reason. And there were certain lines, I think, that, that were left off the album that accentuated it. But it's just how important this imagery of blindness is. Um, Eyes like can, sh-
2: pieces of broken oh, glass. That is yes. just deathless. Oh, That's just line deathless. after line. Yeah.
1: Uh, and, and, you know, we already know from Blind Willie McTell and from the kinds of songs that uh, Dylan covered on Good As i Been to You and World Gone Wrong, how much he admires uh, and emulates those blind blues masters. And I make the argument in that in a piece for Shadow Chasing that maybe he's trying to kind of imagine his way into that experience and write songs as if he were a blind blues master. But then the thing that was suddenly striking me that I hadn't thought of before until court was talking is that imagery of um the you know the sun, but it's not the sun that was before, and that I've got new eyes, everything seems far away. If you have new eyes, you'd think it would bring things closer, but instead, it makes it harder to see. And that sun then could be a kind of if i mean, it's easy to think of the sun as a kind of eye of God, right? Uh, and if it's a blind eye, that's such a powerful image, right? This sort of sense of the dark land of the sun. Wait, the sun? That shouldn't be a dark land, that should be a light land. But even on a metaphysical level, there's a sense of blindness uh, in the pall of this dark world he's creating for us. And that that Lanlois is is supplementing, complementing uh, sonically.
5: Well, that, uh, that outtake of Can't Wait, where you're turning yourself to the wall, and the sun is so intense, um, some of that stuff gets into the release take, but there's all there's all sorts of stuff there that he was playing with. I think he even says blindness in that in that take too. Does anybody remember
0: when he introduced the eye of Horus as his sort of unofficial um, symbol? I looked that up once. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking early 2000s, mid mid 2000s, somewhere in there, um, but not long after this album. But that that's interesting.
2: I almost got a tattoo of that. Cut that out of this. Cut that. T- part out of this whole Zoom. I'm only going to cut it out if you if you got a tattoo. Yeah, <laughs>
5: yeah it's Can't Wait version one with well, the blindness overtaking me is beating like a drum. Yeah.
2: There's no bad take of Can't Wait. Every single version of Can't Wait is the best version of Can't Wait. Every single one is the best. Whichever I'm listening to, that's the best one. I couldn't choose. Let's do it list? in B flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
5: Yeah, but that's the trick, and that's where he gets these songs. Like, you can go back to Blood on the Tracks, there's there's that ability where he could just he could keep riffing these lyrics forever. And they'd always yes, be yes. there, but then they're a little bit different. And then he does it with Can't Wait. These are different songs, but it's the same song.
2: Can I just say one thing, and then I have to go? This is tying into um, what Grayley was saying, is that the whole – when you take the trying to get to heaven, is it trying to get to heaven too? Yes. Trying to get to heaven, which is almost identical lyrically and uh, f- phrase wise to the Lanois, to the album version. It's almost identical, but the that subtle difference of the that space that Lanois creates on the album r- really is the right choice. There's There's an... There's incredible vocals. There's incredible vocal subtlety. Um, my favorite uh, verse in that song, the pendulums, the people on the station, he just really infuses that with this energy on the the outtake, but that just would not have been right for the album. As So even those subtle, those songs where it's not, a, you know, it's nothing like the Not Dark Yet where it's a whole other universe of, but where the changes are just, where it's just the subtleness of the production, he really did the right thing for the album. And that's it. I got to go. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Nina. Bye, Nina. Bye.
0: I'm, I'm actually sorry we're losing Nina at that exact moment because the next question I was hoping she would be here for. <laughs> go back to that tattoo. Is that what yeah, you said? That's talking? right. <laughs> and uh, the it's about um the the live, uh disc disc four um the live version of the albums of, of the album were there any standouts for you disappointments anything missing i mean what are your thoughts about those live versions
5: i was not uh signing up for this to go i need a "Till i fell in love with you live version but that recording is fireworks yeah like we had an entire i I don't know y'all might have dug into that bootleg or whatever but if, that, if there's an entire concert with that quality of vocal man
3: i've been digging into a lot of uh bootlegs from the era because just because and um uh part of uh and i found some real gems so it doesn't uh, uh some of the recordings are um clearly some of them are audience recordings they're 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 not soundboard recordings uh I'm actually um, a fan of, or I guess this is presaging your, your question about what should we have next on the bootleg series? Uh, you know, I, I like, I would like to hear some of those soundboard you know uh especially the the prime years of 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 like 97 through 2002 um would be a great uh you know a deep dive into the never-ending tour but i i wasn't the 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 till i fell in love with you is the standout i agree with court in in that in that regard the rest of them i've i've heard so many uh bootleg versions one thing i do want to say though is that um that the fidelity somewhat to the, the final version of the the album version of the songs shows to me that Dylan was really proud of the album that he and Lenoir put together, that a lot of the songs live are the arrangements. It's not true for trying to get to heaven. He's got a much more meditative, slower version, but most of them lovesick, um, even can't wait. They f- they tend to follow the arrangements that they settled on as the final pro- product, and so that shows that Dylan was really proud of that of 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 the record that he and Len Waugh collaborated on.
5: If you're gonna sing the twenty verse, if you're gonna have a twenty verse song and you're gonna sing it live, why don't just sing the twenty verse song? Why why mash it into a nineteen verse song? Because he, he he collapses the I think verse two and three. That's kind of an interesting, but that's an interesting mindset. Like, why is there something there? Is he constructing I mean, it, it doesn't become a short. Song. I love that 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 anecdote where he says this is the short version. I love that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's a question here, not not from live, but it, it dawned on me, and I and I'll, I'll pause it. Well, maybe Grayley, you can answer this too. But does the, going back to the original conversation, does this record even seem like a 1997 record? I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about it. We look at it now, and and, and the poll quote, of course, is. This was old Dylan, and now we're – that was halfway Dylan. <laughs> but like 1997, I was trying to think. You have the Stones doing Bridges to Babylon, and that's all we'll say. But McCartney is doing Flaming Pie. And he, go, he goes through the whole anthology, and he goes back, and he says, here's a new way of recording. There, there's not a direct analog there, but if you're looking at what Dylan's coming from, there's a lot of int- – he's so different. Like That record does, is so – he's not going on some journey to the past. He's in the journey of the present, right? He's trying to figure this out. But it's so fascinating when we think about that. And the other thing I'll add is that there is a very good reason why Jerry Garcia's death predates this. I get that. But there's also – I've always been struck by the fact that he starts recording just a few weeks after Towns Van Zandt died. And the connection between Dylan and Van Zant is not an easy one, and I don't suggest that there is a, a, a direct connection here. But there a—that's an, an interesting—that that was an interesting thing when you start looking at those notes, and you start realizing the recording dates, and that's always fun with Dylan. You're going, "Well, what's going on here? What's going on there?" But then the other thing too is this is a 1997 recording. It comes out. You have OK Computer, right? I think is that same year. You also have the biggest selling record is a uh, Candle in the Wind. The the redo, right? That's 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 what he's coming in from. I mean that's what's being sung. And I think maybe that the, the record is stranger then than now. Maybe it's stranger now than then. I don't know what we do with it. But it's strange to consider it as a nineteen ninety-seven album. Because Lanois makes that very, very difficult. Because Lanois makes it sound like a Lanois record. It's like it's a, it's a nineteen ninety Lanois record. It's not necessarily a 1997 record. But I think that is exactly the point that Grayley, you make. It gets, it's, it's in time, out of time. It's, it's of the moment. It's of his moment. But yet it's also being put out there at a time when all these other records are sort of there. And you have these other, his peers, quote unquote, are still putting out new product, but they're very different. They're very different takes on them, their careers and that. And I don't think Dylan's thinking in those terms at all which is not news, but it's interesting. It's interesting when you go back to that moment.
1: Yeah, you know, um, it, is a, it is a time-shifting album, uh, right? Uh, and you feel that sense of wrinkles in time where he'll mash together references that don't seem to fit together except that Bob Dylan makes them fit together. You know, you can have standing in the doorway that starts off with a jukebox and then he's riding a horse. I love that line about the horse, right? Uh, and he'll seem to be making references, you know, that, that it'll be a contemporary song, but then he'll be making these biblical references. And it's not a contradiction. It's not like he lost the thread. He forgot what he was writing about. This is how Dylan sees a world in which these overlapping time references make some kind of sense. And so, sonically, yeah, it's, on the one hand, um, he, you know, the, the, the tapes that, the, the music he wanted Lanois to listen to to get ready for this album uh, where it might as well be a 1927 album as a 1997 album, you know, Charlie Patton and stuff. But then we also learned, you know, that he wanted it to be a Beck album yeah. <laughs> or a sound like that with loops and all this. And so it is a weird mishmash of things and it, it shouldn't work, but it so does.
5: But it also, it's a, it's a beautiful prelude and obvious, obvious, obvious reasons to love and theft. But, yeah. love, but like you brought up the bricolage element and that the bricolage stuff was less talked about. It's what everyone talks about after Love and Theft. But before that, he's still, he's playing this really interesting piece here. Um, and I like the idea that he's kind of taking himself as the subject. Like, it's not another poet or something. He's kind of, he's obvious. the thing is, and this is what's so beautifully evocative about this record from the very beginning, is that he's searching, we know this, never ending tour, whatever you want to look at it, whatever metaphor, whatever way you want to get into it. But he's obviously going, this is not what I want. This is not the song the way I want it, and now it is. Or this is the song that's not quite what I want and how it is. And you have these musicians who are like, well, this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life, I've ever been involved with. And it's like, yeah, we're not doing it. I understand the frustration, but it's such a beautiful kind of monument to this. Um, and, to, and just the harp on it, you know, when you have uh, Red River sitting out there with these at least two gorgeous versions that are very different, they, don't, they shouldn't be on the record. I'm not making the argument they should be on the record. But he's on this other path because you have Red Red River Shore, you got Huck's tune a little bit later. You have these really interesting sort of vibrations that are happening outside of this other thing. Um, He never makes a whole record that sounds like it. But if he did, I mean, some of those outtakes, his voice is so great and it's so Mm -hmm. beautiful um, and so different sounding that there's like a whole other shadow series of records he could have made on
4: but to both of your points, so Rob and I had talked about that yesterday and you can, or not yesterday, Thursday, about how he, the, the albums that he gives or the people he tells Le Mans to listen to, clearly he's not making a modern record, but then he has, you know, he puts in their Odelay, And for me, I think it highlights this idea because there's constant movement in, in time out of mind. He's walking, he's on a boat, he's been all around the world, but he's constantly talking about how he's moving. And then I'll get to the points where he's standing still because that, because there is a point to be made there. But we go back to all the times that he said, you know, an artist has to be careful never to really arrive at a place, you know, where he thinks he's he's somewhere. And that, that constant movement is a state of constant artistic creation and its vitality. And so what we're seeing, even though he's contemplating mortality, he's still, it starts the next, what we thought was end-career Dylan, but you pointed out it's mid-career Dylan, that it's the next part of his career. And he's created some really great stuff from that point. And he's already in the Never Ending Tour, so he is moving. But from that point on, he starts to really play the new stuff. And so that, to me, that movement that we see, that I've really been focused on, is artistic vitality and it's also the sense of creation where we see him constantly moving and creating you know new ways of writing and painting and you know considering his artistic creation and the places where we see him standing still he really feels that sense of mortality and he took out of i know you were excited Grayly, about that first version of not dark yet that i was on first listen horrified by like horrified. Uh, and part of that is a, a personal because this is the album I listened to over the last year um and especially in the fall but he he takes out he takes out the line where he is standing he's standing in the shadow watching the parade. And so and even when so he's he's taking that stasis out of that line, out of that song and then he also has the it, it looks like I'm moving, but I'm standing still. And so that sort of sleight of hand that, you know, he is standing still and where he's feeling that the darkness is coming. And I found that just lovely. Um, but that's how I look at this is that, you know, it is, it it is out of, it is suspended in time, but he's also giving us this constant movement where he's launching something new. I have more to say about Knock Dark yet, but I will be quiet now. I think Rob wants to speak.
3: I was just going to say that you can see um, in those '80s albums like Empire Burlesque, he was clearly working with producers and saying, "and saying, I I want to make a modern record, modernize my sound." And this fragments proves that. And again, I went back and reread the "Oh Oh Mercy," where Bono supposedly with his his case of Guinness inspired Dylan to call up Daniel Lenoir and hook up with him. But I think Court makes uh, a, that great case. Lenoir's own solo albums, Emmylou Harris, Wrecking Ball, just a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous album um, that he's um, going to look to do something new, not modern, but new. And so, yeah, if we want uh, uh, a Let It Be Naked, whatever, for um, it's empire burlesque script stripped down or something like that but that's the sense where you get like he's working in the music industry and he's like all right i gotta get a producer i've got these songs how do i um modernize the sounds and being completely disenchanted with that entire process and it's just a remarkable testament to um his artistry that he can't give it all up he goes back and he's like i found this producer that can get on my wavelength and can understand where I'm coming from. So I want to go back into the studio and again and go back again and again. I don't want to be in there with Tom Wilson for one night, record uh, 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 another side and get the hell out. I want to stay and really work with these songs. So it's 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 just that vitality that Aaron was talking about. just it's remarkable.
4: But also, Rob, that point that Nina made um, about Lanwa having the, the confidence to go head to head with Dylan, that maybe other producers wouldn't, and that helped the creative process to give us what we have in, in the final version.
5: I mean, they have they have been working obviously for some time. They knew each other at the yeah. Degree. I mean, there's these beautiful, evocative moments with you know Dylan with his little notebook, or maybe he's not even doing the notebook, but he's reading the lyrics to to Lanwa. That, that's a beautiful on the on the the bumper of the car. But back to Jim's kind of question, I wonder too, is this the, and I'm not a never ending tour, however we call it, aficionado, but I'm wondering if these live tracks, as they enter into the set lists, I wonder if this is what kind of, because you have those late nineties and early aughts concerts, which are really phenomenal. And I'm wondering if this is kind of loosening them up a little, not loosening them up, but maybe they're kind of addressing different things because you know, I think there's some stasis in those mid-90s shows. I mean, as good as they were, there's some stasis, and that maybe this blows up that. Because he starts bringing in those older tunes. He starts bringing in some of that stuff a little bit differently. Um, I'm wondering if this is sort of the more of a segue period live version. I mean, I think we have some questions in terms of the bootleg series itself of, like, why those tracks? You know, what are they trying to suggest here? It's not a whole show. There's different ways you can go about that. You know, there's different ways you could approach that. But it's, it's intriguing. Uh, the way they've presented it.
1: I think of another live moment, too, because it's always interesting to me that Dylan, multiple times in reflecting on those tempestuous uh, studio recordings of Time Out of Mind, says that he felt the spirit of Buddy Holly, right, Uh, hovering and inspiring the whole thing. And there's that give and take, right? Because on the one hand, we hear Buddy Holly and we think, well, that's old, that's old rock and roll. But Dylan remembers what it was like for that to be the freshest, newest, mind-blowing thing. He, know, he remembers what it feels like to be in the audience in the Duluth Armory, National Guard Armory, right, and hearing that. And so that, that one figure can be so old and so fresh and new and full of vitality is, is telling. I mean, it, that, that would be the presiding genius over those recording sessions, wouldn't it, but, Buddy Holly? And that's what he wanted from the never ending tour
3: audiences. He wanted to keep playing the same places because he wanted newer audiences to come. He was, he didn't want to be a, um, uh, a, a, a revival tour. He, he wanted to have those, that, the, the, that, that charge of people seeing him for the first time and, and, and the iconography of, of who he was gone and just the songs themselves captivate you.
5: Well, it goes back to what Rob, you and I were talking about recently, this idea of the ever-expanding present allowing for the past to sort of shape that, but you're in that moment right now. And he remembers specifically that moment, and that moment is going to, you know, maybe he thinks of him in that way, or maybe he's constantly being going back to that for some reason. I mean, we would all think that there's something really heavy there, but I think he's clearly mining something, and that's only going to continue when we get down the road from
1: that's also why three of us are wearing buddy holly glasses uh for this round
5: it's the ever expanding age of my eyes but yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that strikes me about the live versions is um the, the fact that and i just looked this up none of them are later than 2001 and you know anyone who's attended dylan concerts has heard other versions of some of these songs and i'm the the one I always go back to in my mind and and on on listening to bootlegs is the the um 2019 version of Not Dark Yet, which is which in my mind stands up very well next to the '97 version. Any any thoughts about that? Do you remember that version?
3: Turns away from the, the 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 piano, grabs the microphone, and goes into this searing this this the minor key. Not dark yet. He turns on a dime from this kind of this this uh, 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 gentle way of performing "The Girl from the North Country," and then the dark side of it we get, and and
5: it's, it was so powerful, so powerful. I remember listening to that song in November 2016, and it was a dusk day in East Texas, the day after the election. Um, and uh, yeah, that song speaks. That, that song speaks to everything you could ever go through. The other thing I was going to say is like his live show now, right, very monochromatic in a beautiful way. But his live show then wasn't. His live show then was like, here's this song, here's this song, here's an arrangement, here's an arrangement. Even what Rob was just saying, here's this shift. And now he's sort of like, well, now whatever he's doing currently, I don't really know. But his, it's like, here's, here's something in brown for you. And I'm meaning this in the most beautiful, positive way I can. I don't mean it negatively at all. But I think that's interesting how he's adjusted the way he views these songs and arrangements.
1: And there was the echo effect that he had in 2019 when he played it live, um, which, though it's more pronounced than any of the echo effects you hear on on the studio album "Time Out of Mind," it feels of a piece. That's like an extension, an amplification of that effect. And of course, Jim and I—I I mean, Jim—you may have seen multiple shows on that tour. But I know that you and I actually attended the same concert and saw that version together at Northern Kentucky University uh, in November of 2019, and that was the highlight of the show for me. I was for for the record, by the way, we,
0: we, we weren't together together. I had horrible seats, and when I got up to leave, I found the aisle. I saw right. I, saw I was on the front row, the front row. <laughs> like a mile away. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that and that, yeah, it was the highlight for me.
1: He was trying to get closer, but he was still miles, a million so miles from me.
0: <laughs> so I want to wrap this up with a question about the future. All right. Um, so I want to ask you, and, and Rob already gestured toward this. There have been some indications that we're nearing the end of the bootleg series, that there, there might not be too many more additions. We're at number 17. Maybe the Dylan camp wants to round it off at a nice 20. And, uh, you know, and go from and and, and not do any more to that. What do you hope will be in the next series? Or what what do you think will be in the next series? What do you want to hear?
5: I just want to add that that's a really fascinating conversation, though, right? Like, why? Because the reason why isn't content. The reason why is economics. And the reason why is what does a box set look like today? And who's doing? I mean, there's a lot of really kind of interesting questions in that. I never got the feeling that they're thinking we've scraped the barrel and we don't have an interest anymore. I think it's more like, well, what does the bootleg series even look like? And I think there's been some weird sort of versions down the road. But I think there's as a, as a group of, of a collection of, of recordings, it's a fascinating experiment. And I, I would hope that they don't end it. And I bet we all hope they don't end it. But maybe they'll shift it in some way and it's a different thing. But as that as a caveat, I think it's an interesting the question of the series itself is interesting. I'll let other people speak first in terms of their wish list, but I think, that, I think that is an interesting conversation.
1: Well, my wish list, of course, would be Love and Theft, because I love that album so much, and so anything that didn't get included is probably worth listening to as well. Uh, if there were karma in the universe, the first disc would be a remix produced by Daniel Lanois, but I don't anticipate that will happen. Uh, but then having said that, you know, um, often the bootleg series I love are ones that blow my mind because I, they take material that I was underwhelmed by originally and make me realize, oh, there was a whole lot more interesting going on here. So maybe Together Through Life, which is probably the weakest link, if I had to pick a weak link in Dylan's 21st century stuff, that would be the one where there's the most a uh, potential for movement. For me, I think that if if there's some really interesting material that didn't make the cut onto that album, I'd love to hear it just so that I can appreciate what was going on at that time, maybe better than I currently do with that album.
4: Clearly, I was thinking the same thing about Together Through Life, that it, there, there's got to be something. Not there has to be, but I, I want to see if there was anything else that would make it more interesting um, for sure. So we're like minded. I heard someone say um, the Supper Club. Tapes that would be really wonderful to have those. Um, So those would be my two. But yeah, Together Through Life was first on my list,
5: for sure. I think think we go back to the idea of what we get out. I was most excited about Cutting Edge. I was most excited about Basement. But the ones I listened to, Another Self-Portrait is just five, 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 five stars. Trouble No More, mind-blowing. Trouble No More shifted the needle um yeah summer club would be great i would say what do people generally say the 74 tour do something with that uh, street, legal, session. street legal the tom petty stuff i'll say this here's my two answers one i would like to do something larger with the dead there's got to be some great concert footage that is being cleaned up and i would love to see something like that and uh the contrarian in me and i'll just i'll just say it wouldn't you love to have the five discs of outtakes of the of the um the Christmas record? Which I personally do love. I adore that record. If we're, we're going to have a wish list, let's get like the five discs there of, of different things. and
1: Dylan's Halloween songs, Dylan's Hanukkah songs, Dylan's, yeah, keep going down the list.
5: Guys, I got, let me tell you, this is the record that's going to bring everybody together. Five discs.
1: I don't hear a single, court. I don't hear a single.
5: I, 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 oh, that, that is the short version. Uh, but, you know, if you've gone to the, the Dylan Center, they have really beautiful video footage of the Tom Petty those Tom Petty shows. And I, I'm guessing that's probably being worked out at some point. I don't know how or what or what they look like, but that stuff yeah. would be really cool too.
1: Can I throw something in because I meant to work it in at some point? Um, and, you, you know, as much as I love Fragments, I will say the one, maybe it wasn't, I couldn't call it a disappointment, but I had hoped that maybe there was a song I had never heard you know, that they would pull out and, and blow my mind, because often the bootleg series will. And the the water is wide. I mean, that was such a fantastic, and so I'm so glad that was out there. But when I went back to my um, old dusty copy of Still on the Road, Clinton Halen, he has a, in, in his covering the, uh, all the songs that Bob Dylan is known to have written during, you know, his career up to that point, he has an entry on a song called All I Ever Loved Is You, and, which is almost the title of a Stanley Brothers song, but not quite. But he couldn't find any you know, official record of it. And he write, this is quoting Halen. Talking of Lost Originals, another song title mentioned by the Criteria Session musicians has singularly failed to appear. No turning back. This may have been turned into something else, as Doing Alright became Till I Fell In Love With You, or maybe not. So... I don't know. Maybe Halen's just wrong, you know, but he, he does have, you know, that there are records with those song titles listed. All I Ever Loved Is You and No Turning Back. So I had kind of hoped that those would make it somehow onto Fragments, but either, well, I, they didn't for whatever reason. But maybe they'll be on the next bootleg series.
0: Any other predictions or hopes or dreams about the bootleg series? I've already men- made my my comment
3: i would like to see a a a more concerted curatorial attempt at the never-ending tour because that's such a huge part of dylan's um productivity over the past 25 30 years now and um i i you know from the economic standpoint you can obviously see this is like an endless cash cow where it's like, here's another curated, you know, all of the songs from time out of mind live, uh, in different versions. And, you know, but I would, I would like something really with a, uh, um, that kind of a concerted curatorial, um, you know, finding the best sound, but also the best performances, which is, I mean that's a huge undertaking but
0: that's and maybe that's sense. what is you know after the bootleg series ends that's what the next undertaking is because that is much bigger than anything um the bootleg series has taken on are any thoughts
4: I think I shared my thoughts I did have thoughts on not dark not dark yet but we moved past it
0: No please let us let us know we're not we don't have to be in order go ahead
4: Okay well maybe you and I can have a little a little repartee on this, but i I felt that the you know the the first version of not dark yet um I told you I was horrified by it uh, and so let me look at my note the one thing that I thought was interesting in particular um was that he there's that the line where he says that just being in the same country as her is making me blue. I've got nothing left over from the love that we once knew, and he replaces that with. She wrote me a letter. She wrote it so kind. She put down in writing what was on her, what was in her mind, and so it takes it from love, from pathos, into you know, into her her mind. And and we talk, we joke that it's probably just a, for, a formatted dear John letter. But he then does have something. There is something left over from the love, and it's probably this stale. Letter of just you know, dear John, um, and I feel that I already talked about the. Um, I don't like the tempo. I don't. I miss the the plotting of the you know the percussion in it and the crashing of the symbol that it just makes me feel like this wave of sadness is coming over me. And so I felt like it's great to see what didn't work. I miss some of the really beautiful lyrics that he had in there, like the eye, the the eyes of glass and. Um, I did like standing in the shadows, even though it showed him in stasis. And I would love to know what you what you thought of that. Um, but I, let me see. Make sure to, to. I didn't like the more the. I thought that I was glad he dropped the lines. Her lips were so tender. Her skin was so soft because it they just seemed, um, you know, trite. And what he replaced them for was, uh, was really lovely. And you pointed out, and I had this in my notes too, um, that I'm praying the master will guide me back and how it, it, it leads us to every grain of sand. And he replaces that with, I like, can't hear a murmur of a prayer. And it's like, there's that sense of despair there. But I'm interested to know um, any thoughts in response to that.
1: Well, j- just so we're clear, I worship Not Dark Yet as released on the album. It is certainly the superior version. There's no doubt he picked the right version, uh, in terms of the tone, uh, to fit with, uh, its darker siblings on that album, uh, but lyrically as well. Uh, I mean, th- those eye references did get my thoughts, uh, uh, turning. The, the line you mentioned there that appears in the album version, but not in the outtake, um, she wrote me a letter and she wrote, wrote it so fine. She put down in writing what was on her mind. It's almost word for word taken from an old song called Red River Shore in, mm-hmm. uh, in yep. uh, one of the John Lomax um, song books. And so there's another, the bricolage thing, that he found a better line and he didn't even have to write it himself, so he just stole it and put it in. But I, I'm still glad that this version of Not Dark Yet exists in the world and we have access to it because it shows that versatility it shows that a song that I never would have thought of in this kind of arrangement can have a certain charm, uh, you know, not as good as the album version, not even close, but, and it kind of fits with the album, or with the song too, in that the central conceit, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Well, it's just lighter. It's it's really not as dark yet on this version, you know, that the sun's setting, but the sun's still higher in the sky on this outtake, then it will eventually sink down to uh, when we get to them. So in a weird way, I mean, the the it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Even that image is a sense of the passage of time and the erosion uh, of of uh, of the singer as the sun sinks lower.
4: I'm not sure. I agree that I'm glad it exists, um, <laughs> but I he's even said that it's not about that ultimate despair because he says it's not dark yet. It's that yet that is a qualifier. So I understand the tempo, and I've really tried. I've listened to it quite a bit and I've tried with it, but I am um, I keep going back to either version two or the one on the Lenoir album. Well, he
5: needs the the London and Gay paris line, which is one of my favorite sung verses that he's ever had.
1: And the way he delivers it, I've been to London. Oh, we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't imitate uh, Bob, but you, oh, you know, though, you mentioned that and it's always kind of out of place to me. I mean, it's, I like the way he delivers it, but it's like, where does London and gay Paris uh, suddenly come in here? But that reminds me of one of the outtakes, which song was it? Was it Dirt Road Blues, where he talks about walking the streets of Broadway and Hollywood, I think. and, And we're like, I thought you were on a dirt road. What, where did we, we get involved. to New York and yeah. Hollywood all of a sudden? Yeah. So another one of those uh, kind of non-sequitur geographical references in this otherwise kind of unlocatable universe, except for trying to get to heaven, uh, where we get Missouri and Baltimore.
5: I just want to say that on February, on February 1st, there was a text exchange between me and Aaron, and we were talking about all these other different things. And in the middle of the text exchange, she says, quote, I have strong negative feelings about version one of Not Dark Yet. <laughs> That is true. So my- pretty- yes, these other <laughs> things are important. We need to talk about these things, but I need to tell you, it, it is important for me, for you to know, that I, quote, have strong negative feelings about version one of Not Dark I'm consistent. And to I- add to your point, Grayley, to, to, and give voice to Erin, and you give voice to yourself, please. But you suggest, I don't know if I can completely really buy this, but you suggest that London and Paris are ways to talk about rivers that are that not are the American rivers.
4: Right. And I, I, yeah, I was about to say that. So thank you for for mentioning that. But that's what I thought. And in addition to all of the movement and the, you know, the travel and whatnot that he talks about, I thought perhaps that was, those are nods to other rivers that, because right after that, he says that, you know, he, he references the rivers that go to the sea. And so I thought that maybe there was a connection there.
5: And we don't know what Red River is either, right? Everyone just assumes it's the Oklahoma-Texas River, but it may, be, it may not. be. There's apparently more than one Red River. Yeah, it's not the most, you know, specific sounding river. Yeah. Jim, i say that our next session will be all about Red River. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> well, this has been, I want to wrap this up. <laughs>
0: This has been fantastic, as always. Um, this is a great group. I love talking to you guys. Um, and I always learn so much. Just, just listen to everybody uh, go at the topics. And uh, we'll, we will reconvene again if everyone is game for that. And we will, uh, we will find another topic, and, uh, and we'll make short work of it. But thank you very much, and um, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to have the Dillentons sent directly to your inbox and share the Dillentons on social media.